companies that are not willing to adapt, to feel younger, to feel like they've got their own soul, you're going to lose that attention. Hey, party people, welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president of Blast Media, and I am pumped to talk to Justin Keller, the VP of Revenue Marketing at Drift. I have had the pleasure of knowing Justin since he worked at Sigster about five years ago and have been able to follow his journey as a kick-ass marketer and friend over the years. Justin and I talk today about why you need to ditch your boring, burnt out, bland B2B marketing strategies and start thinking more like consumer brands in a way that inspires, that's creative, and gets the vocal minority talking. So grab a drink, join me as I speak with Justin Keller, VP of Revenue Marketing at Drift. Justin, it's finally happening. Welcome to SaaS Half Full. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to having a drink in a podcast conversation like since I started drinking. So we did send you a cocktail kit. I don't know which one you picked, however. I've got a neat martini, which I did not realize at the time. I, th- I don't know what I thought, um, but it's like, this is for a very minimalist cocktail. It's very clean and it's all vermouth. And I'm like, well, shit, I'm not minimalist and I don't have any vermouth right now. So I went ahead and made a gin martini with the fennel shrub and the olive bitters and does that make you to shake? There, yes, shake away. I am being very basic. Uh, I after this, it's it's four o'clock on a Thursday. Now this is very respectable drinking hour. Uh, however, mother duty calls after this, so I'm going to have a drink of a seltzer. Uh, I should be paid by Ranch Water at this point. We talk about it all the time. I love this seltzer. It is called Ranch Water. And I recommend it, but that is what I'm going to dive into. I will take a little break and then we'll see what happens later on tonight. Well, Justin, you and I have known each other a very long time since your days at Sigster. And I don't even try to guess when that was, but it was some years ago. But we've known each other a long time and there are many, many topics that we could talk about. But where we landed is something that you are no stranger to, which is doing really cool shit as a B2B marketer and ditching and doing away with traditionally what has been thrown in this bucket of B2B, boring and bland and business-like, all the Bs. When you think about your journey, you had Sigster and Terminus and now Drift, everyone would agree that the marketing and the brand and the feel of those companies, whether that's the look or how it makes you feel and what you experience is very much more aligned with a consumer brand than a B2B brand. So that's a topic that you and I landed on. Excited to talk about it. But before we do, I want to give our listeners a little bit of understanding on who you are as a human being. Uh, I certainly said the names of the companies at which you worked. Uh, But what was your journey into B2B SaaS? You seem now that you're seasoned in that, but was that something that you dreamed of coming out of your double major of being a B2B SaaS marketer? How'd you get into this market to begin with? I think because I'm an idiot. (laughs) So out out of college, I went to work for a company. You may remember this company. You remember Cha-Cha? Oh, yeah. I was the first non-founding employee there and kind of like lucked into a cool job, like in a stratospherically successful for a moment tech company. Um, and if you're listening, you don't know what that is. It was basically before smartphones happened, you could text a question and someone would text you back with the answer. So 
kind of like manual peer-to-peer Google. But then the smartphone came out and I was like, oh shit, uh, let's figure out a new, what am I going to do? Went and got my MBA and moved to California the day after I graduated. And I knew I wanted to get into marketing because, I mean, like anyone that gets into marketing, you think, well, that's the cool part of the company. We're pelted with ads all day, every day. It seems like that's where you get to be creative and, you know, have fancy drinks on podcasts and stuff like that. And so when I moved to California, I didn't honestly know any better. I thought marketing was marketing and all the jobs out there are B2B SaaS, right? And so I was like, oh, marketing is marketing. I went there and I had no idea that B2B marketing was as bland and boring as I think we all malign it to be. And so I went into my first job thinking, all right, let's fuck stuff up. Like, let's get really big ideas. Let's show the IT management world what they've been missing all this time and had no baseline that we were supposed to be kind of buttoned up and clean. And that was just kind of a bad habit I got from day one and never really knew any better, but I never really leaned into it either. I was always like, I mean, I felt like I had just spent a hundred thousand dollars on an MBA. I need to be very book smart and numbers driven. So ran performance marketing teams out in San Francisco. And then it wasn't until I moved to back to Indianapolis and went to Sixter where I marketed to marketers that I was like, like, let's just kind of put that stuff aside. Let's not be so numbers driven and let's just kind of lean into what I as a marketer would like to be marketed to. And so we went pretty wild. We just had big ideas. We didn't really care. I mean, when I say push the boundaries, I'm not taking, I'm not giving myself too much credit. It's that the boundaries are so like narrow that it's, if you do anything a little outside the norm, it's pushing the boundaries. And so that's kind of where I, I landed and it worked really well. Sixter grew 4X, 5X in like a year and a half, two years. And it became this little darling brand uh, to the point we got acquired by Terminus. Um, and then at Terminus, they were like, we want you to do nothing but brand. And then we had a lot of fun there. And then now at Drift, I joined Drift just because I felt like we were kindred spirits. They were doing it on a much bigger scale than I was. And they had a, a lot of like very strong brand standards, really edgy, wanted to do things their own way all the time. And I was like, yes, what they're doing is exactly what the rest of us need to be doing. And now I'm thrilled to be part of it. When you went to Sigster, did you feel like there was already, do you feel like the leadership team already embraced this idea of marketing differently? Or is that something that you brought to the table? I think I brought it to the table and I don't even think I meant to. It was one of those things where I was lucky to have wonderful teammates, Brad and Bailey. It was just a three-person marketing team at the time. And every idea is a good idea. Let's just throw stuff at the wall until it works. And I didn't have any problem going big. And it was totally a natural thing where we started throwing wild parties. We had really off the wall content. Um, And it was a sum of everyone's just like ability to be a little risky and crazy and embrace it and just say, hey, we're going to do it anyway. That made it kind of catch fire. And we just kind of got better and better and it snowballed. I have been on the receiving end of some of those parties, and I can tell you that they were a lot of fun, uh, and they always had a very catchy and memorable name, which was awesome. So Sigster days, small team, throwing proverbial shit at the wall, seeing what sticks, fast forward, drift, hyper growth company. Have you adopted any sort of a process system framework for brainstorming, coming up with big ideas and campaigns? And if so, can you share that with us? I can. I think that's the biggest difference is getting those big ideas to come through all the way. I think like small companies, I love because your competitive advantage is that you can move fast and take risks and nothing matters. And when you start to scale, there's just so many people involved. We've got an 80 person marketing team here. And there's a lot of opinions and ideas in the room. That said, it is, I think, sewn into the fabric, uh, like it's in the DNA of the company. And I think that's probably where the first gate is on getting people to take these big chances. 
I've got so many friends that work in big stuffy companies that are envious of being able to do that thing and say, I wish I could do that. I'm like, well, why can't you? Like, what's stopping you? And they give reasons, you know, my boss is Republican from Tennessee or my board would never let me do that or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I, I never heard a good reason. I feel like every day our B2C friends are getting paid, especially if you're in an agency, you're getting paid a shitload of money to come up with the wildest idea you can to get people's attention. But for whatever reason, B2B companies feel like we need to be able to please everyone. We need to mean nothing to everyone. And I think it's super sad. And I think where we're trying to orient ourselves is saying, it's okay if you don't want to be our customer. We, we want to do things that may piss some people off. We want to stay in our own lane. Now, where it does get tough though, and this is a conversation I'm just starting to have is, if I can tell a quick little story, when I was in San Francisco, my my first CEO out there, Hi Beezer, um, wore a bow tie every day of his life in the office. He had like a Rolodex of, I'm not even kidding, a Rolodex of bow ties. And so that kind of became this thing like we latched onto. We'd go to trade shows, we'd bring a box of 100 bow ties and give them out to people and we'd tie them onto it. And as we're doing that, we, it just kind of became a thing. And as we'd go into content meetings, we'd say, okay, this is good, but how do we put a bow tie on it? And not literally put a bow tie on it, but what's that weird, quirky thing that we do every day that kind of becomes the thing we catch on? And so that's where I'm trying to get now, where I just recently acquired our content team as part of my team now. And so I'm starting to say, okay, now how do we put a lightning bolt on it? The drift kind of icon is a lightning bolt. And everything we do, I want to do less of it and do spend more time figuring, okay, how is this different than anything else that anyone's doing? How can we literally make, you know, if it takes 25% longer to make sure that it's just a little left of center, then I'm willing to invest that time in it. I want to go back to something that you said, which was creativity is in the DNA of Drift. And you certainly have other people that you know who that is not the case. And I think especially with more legacy companies, and we're talking companies that around a decade plus, 20 years, who potentially don't understand the seismic shift that has happened with buyers, specifically as a lot of those buyers are millennial buyers. Talk to us a little bit about the shift that you have seen happen and what buyers expect today from B2B brands. Like, How do they want to be sold to, if at all? Oh my God, I can talk about this for hours. Starting with millennials. Millennials are now, I could be wrong on the staff, but it's in the ballpark at 60% of the tables where B2B decisions are made, right? They are influencers, if not decision makers. And I am an elder millennial, so I'm kind of a senior millennial. Grew up on the internet, and the internet's an absolutely wild place where there are no rules, there's no standards and practices. It's a completely different experience growing up on the internet compared to people that were stuck with network TV, and that's kind of it. So they're already a little radical when it comes to how they consume, how they evaluate, how they interact with their peers. And then if you take into account like COVID, where all of a sudden we're not in offices anymore, everything is virtual, where millennials are very well attuned. They don't want to talk to a salesperson ever. Like I, And I think there's another one where like 70% of the buyer's journey in B2B is done before they ever pick up the phone with, with the salesperson, right? Which means your online persona is everything because by the time they've made a decision, there are, that's when they're talking to the salesperson. So how you show up online, the way they interact with their friends on Instagram needs to feel like the way they want to interact with your brand. If you're not making those things line up, that just kind of like fun. I want to be your virtual friend experience with your brand promise, with your product value. It just is, it's going to start to fall apart pretty soon. I mean, especially as, as 
boomers and Gen Xers are getting close to retirement age. I'm 100% certain, and if I'm wrong, that's fine, but I, I think that the landscape is going to completely change and that companies that are not willing to adapt, to feel younger, to feel like they've got their own soul, you're, you're going to lose that attention. And at the end of the day, that's what marketing is. Like We need to get people's attention. And B2B is averse to doing that in a lot of ways, and some valid, some not, in my opinion, at all. Do you advise that B2B brands look at, when you mentioned TikTok, there's Snap, Instagram, do you suggest that B2B companies look into how they can have a presence on those platforms that are certainly considered consumer and skew very young? What are your thoughts on that? I had a salesperson asked me yesterday what our, not yesterday, or last week, what is our TikTok strategy? Like a sales guy is like, what's our TikTok strategy if that's going to fix our sales problem, anyone's sales problem, right? And absolutely not, no. But I think what he was getting at is it's like, how are we going to make our brand feel like something that wouldn't be unexpected there? And I agree with that. I think you should be willing to invest in things that are not measurable, that are a little weird, that you can't connect revenue to. And I think that's probably the problem with B2B is, you know, with B2C, you have the luxury of trying to create a message and a feeling and you can't necessarily connect the dots to the bottom line. With B2C, everything has to be measured and, and add back up to that. And investing in a brand is not a board member's favorite thing to hear, but I think the, the conversation is going to change. And I'm thrilled that brand is all of a sudden like an important part of any marketing strategy. And investing in things you can't measure just because it's going to create the right vibe is absolutely the right decision, regardless. One of the positive byproducts of the pandemic was on brand and brand marketers. And we fall into brand as a PR agency too, is when the physical world shut down overnight, it forced all brands to look at their digital presence and assess. And many brands went, oh, fuck, my digital presence, my digital experience, I've ignored it. It says nothing. It makes people feel no way. And all of a sudden it was like brand, invest in brand, let's rebrand, let's invest in PR, let's hire brand strategists. So we have benefited a ton through that. And I'm, I'm sure you as you know, a brand function has as well, but that was an eye-opening moment for most. And I remember I interviewed Kate Adams on SAS Half Full, who was with Drift at the time now with Validity. She was my first interview. It was during lockdown in my basement. I mean, I barely remember. It was a horrible time. She had gotten news that the Drift User Conference was going to have to go virtual, had to flip it around in very short order. Fortunately for Drift, the brand has always had shit together from a how does it look, how does it feel. All of the team members seem to have the same vibe. And that's, as you know, Drift is, a, is an aspirational brand for many. But the way that, that Kate and her team were able to shift and create a virtual conference experience. I remember they shipped all of the speakers, a green screen, a ring light, the Drift branding. And I was like, oh my gosh, Drift has it. They just have it together. But companies who had it together at that time were the ones who won. And when you are in a category race, which everyone listening here is in some capacity, the brands who had a strong digital experience won. And it made all of the difference. And Drift has always been one of those brands. And I know you said taking risks and being creative is in the DNA. Has there been anything that has surprised you going from, you know, you went from small startup to growth company to now hyper growth company. 
uh, in Drift. Has there been, there been anything that surprised you when you entered this sort of next growth phase of company as a specifically from a brand marketing standpoint? Yeah, on the one hand, I'm I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of giants here at Drift. Like there's been so much work done that it's my job to just keep the momentum going. And I think that's the tough thing to do. When you're a growth stage company, you're writing a brand new novel from scratch. You can tell whatever story you want. And there's a lot of freedom in that. It's a lot of responsibility in that too, because I think B2B marketers are by and large, not great storytellers or creative geniuses. But that said, there's so few restrictions on what you can do. Going to hyper growth, I think it's a little different because all of a sudden there's a lot more focus on revenue, right? And all of a sudden you start to get your your creative freedom pinched by fiduciary responsibility. And I think if you've got the right senior leadership in place there that give you the latitude you want, that trust that marketing in the right way, like if they set the framework forward and you can do whatever you want with it, then I think great things that can happen. And then at Drift, I think the challenge is different. It's that the story, the third novel of Drift at this point, right? They they started out as like the stratospheric startup brand. They started introducing products like at Lightspeed. I remember like every time I opened my inbox, it felt like there was something new from Drift to the point where we were acquired by Vista about, I think, six months ago. And now it's different. Like it's it's interesting because, I mean, Vista is actually phenomenal. They are less like a PE and more like a VC where they want to kind of coach and help you as much as they can, but they are also ruthless prioritizers. They are exceptional operators. And so they are a lot more careful about what we do with the money, right? So it's not like a VC where it's spend at all costs. It's grow as efficiently as you can. And I think that's where the new challenge for me that is actually kind of exciting for me, this might sound boring, but figuring out how to do outrageously big things in a measurable way on a, on a measured budget is like the new like thing that's fascinating for me. And at scale, like all of a sudden, I don't have 10 salespeople that are going to be judging what the marketing guy is doing. I've got, you know, a hundred of them all over the globe that are all going to have their opinions. And so I think being able to trust your gut is a lot more tough to do at a company of the scale. Being able to manage the messaging internally and how you're doing it is a lot tougher to do. And I think that is ultimately like where where it is. I think the red thread through all these things is trusting in yourself as a marketer and believing that your idea is the right one and it's one that can carry the message of the company. Super scary thing to do. I think that's probably one of the most terrifying things in my career, but you can't not do it. That's, I think, the biggest difference is just like, it's tougher to be a renegade when you get at that scale. And that's kind of my mission right now is to figure out how, how we keep that spirit alive within Drift. Yeah. With smaller companies, it's, it's easier to, to fail fast and fail small. And all of a sudden, you, yeah, you get into a situation, it's like, okay, this is going to be a big fail <laughs> like with a lot <laughs> more tied to it. For marketing leaders who maybe enter a new organization where it's fairly traditional, fairly straightforward, and they're looking to shake it up. And let's say hypothetically, you, you do get the buy-in from the rest of the executive team, maybe the board to take risks. What advice do you have so that the flip of that switch doesn't seem so out there where you go from bland and boring to having some high profile person as a spokesperson or so it doesn't seem very chaotic. What advice do you have there? Do you roll it small or do you just say, screw it, we're doing it? The safe answer is to seek some kind of consensus. Go on a roadshow, introduce your ideas to people, get their in input, which 
you want to do some of, but I think the not safe, which is a way of saying better way of doing it is to anticipate that people are not going to like it and lean into it. If 10%, maybe 20% of the people don't like it, then that means you did a good thing. 80% of people liking something is wildly successful by any other measure. And trying intentionally to do something that is, how do I want to say this? Something that's, you know, provocative enough that people are going to go out of their way to tell you, yeah, I don't like this, or why, why did you do this? Or gosh, these colors are awful. And I mean, colors are a terrible example. This message is absolutely going to have to change how I act and feel good, right? At the end of the day, that's the kind of thing that might get you fired, but it's also the kind of thing that's going to move marketing as a craft, especially in B2B forward. And it's a good time to be a marketer. So I think if you're going to make those big chances right now, and you're you know going to take something risky, it's a really good time to do it because everyone says they want it. And if your company doesn't, I'm sure someone else would. Yeah. If you don't have the vocal minority making noise, it wasn't far enough. That you have to remember that is the minority. And even running a business, we have to remind ourselves, we'll get a couple comments. It's like, ah, you know, we got to revisit this strategy. And it's like, wait, it's two out of 70 people. Like, we're <laughs> so we need to remind ourselves of that. It's okay. You've talked about measurement and impact a little bit throughout this conversation. And I don't want to get into an entire discussion on measuring uh, campaign performance, but I want to get your overall opinion on the importance of measuring brand spend and brand campaigns. I have many times been in the school of thought of just stop trying to measure brand. It's a cost of doing business. It, it's part of the rising tides. It lifts all ships. Stop trying, but realize that that is easier said than done because I am not being held accountable as a marketer with multi-million dollar budgets. What say you? Absolutely spend in brand. And if you want it to be effective, like you're not gonna be able to measure it, but you'll be able to tell. You'll be able to tell when your sales team starts telling you, hey, this person saw this, or your CEO says, my board really liked this, or I'm hearing from investors that, right? That is all the ROI they need. They don't need you to prove it showing up on the bottom line if they start to feel it. So I'd say, first of all, aim for that as your KPI if you're investing in brand. And then the other thing is, if you're investing in brand, you have to do it in a super consistent way. So it's not just like having wild ideas and being kind of like the dog from up is the dog from up. That's kind of always distracted by squirrels, like finding that message and telling it in a bunch of different flavors is, is the key, right? But you have to, it all has to come back to one place that you want to be known for. Coke has thousands of campaigns that run all over the world simultaneously, but it all comes back to like one thing. It's like, enjoy Coke. Right. And they have figured that out that no matter what you're doing, it all points back to the same direction. And if you do that consistently and you keep investing on it and you tell that story a bunch of different ways, different people are going to hear it, but it's all going to be interpreted the same way. And at the end of the day, like I think people at, at B2B companies are regular people that like like to wear cool jeans and like to go to the indie third wave coffee shop. They may drive like a minivan, but they still want to be cool. And I think that's the thing that marketers forget is just because you got that vocal minority that you just talked about in the boardroom, they are not your buyer and they want to engage with people that are like them and not like a soulless, navy blue, boring company that is just trying to be safe and, and piss off exactly no one because, you know, it doesn't speak to anyone. I think that's the thing. Like if you're trying to market to everyone, you're actually marketing to no one. Pick people you want to win with and make them fall in love with you. That's one of the hardest things from the PR front too that that we have found. And I, I 
talk to most of our prospects before they do or don't become Last media clients. And a lot of times they sell a lot of things to everyone. That's what their product offers. And it's like, how are we going to differentiate and tell a story around that when it's so broad and commoditized? And so I love the highly specific, the niche products or platforms. They know exactly who their buyers are and they appeal to a certain audience in a certain way. Because that mass appeal is Tough. You're only going to be making more noise. And that's not something that we're necessarily interested in doing. So I very much agree with that sentiment. I mentioned that Drift is an aspirational brand for many people. Who do you think is doing B2B marketing really well? Who inspires you? Oh my gosh, good question. I think that's my main thing. And I think because of the way I came into B2B marketing is I don't look up to B2B brands. I think Drift is kind of the only B2B brand I've ever looked at. And I was like, okay, okay, I see you. And there are others that are doing great stuff. I think Gong does some really good provocative stuff. They definitely are okay making people unhappy with this or that, but they also back it up with really, really like insightful content. But my whole thing is B2B marketers try to be so safe that I just don't want to look at any of it. I try to go way outside of B2B marketing, even B2C marketing sometimes, and find out like what is a year from now something I should be looking at or what's a counterculture movement that is really interesting to me right now. What are they doing that is kind of getting this groundswell attention and and trying to like dissect that and figure out like, okay, there's something here that's new that hasn't been done that is catching people's attention in a new way. And at the end of the day, that's what makes me so excited about marketing is finding that new thing. It's not just best practices and been there, done that. It's like, okay, what's the experiment we can run? What's the brand new thing that's coming out that I can say I was the first person to do in B2B marketing, which is in a way of me saying, I I, I want to be like the world's best hack. <laughs> like I want to see what really cool people are doing and then steal it for B2B marketing and completely, you know, adulterate it and turn it into a marketing campaign. But it's what I've been doing and it's worked well and, and I, I have fun doing it. And I, I do try to be be part of whatever is new and cool. And, and what I'm taking from that is for marketers, take time to read and listen and research and see what is happening next. Cause by the time it becomes mainstream, it's too late. Uh, but it sounds like you take the time to, to do that. I know it sounds strange to say, take the time to think, take the time to read and research, but those are the things that tend to fall back when we are busy. Yes. And that's not business books. It's not the HBR. It's like, you know, weird conversations, art galleries. It's like going to the the bad part of town, things like that, and trying to see what you can see. Absolutely. Which is why a, uh, a Justin's always a good time. You will go somewhere interesting. <laughs> um, he's not going to take you to a, a B2B conference or have you listen to another, another oh, B2B marketing podcast like this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Justin, this has been awesome. I knew that it would be. Uh, as I end every episode, I ask all of my guests if you have a favorite or signature toast to send us out. I do, actually. I always say to the mud in your eyes, which I don't totally know what that means, but I know it's an old English thing. To the mud in your eyes. I think it's just all the shit you had to deal with to get here to have this drink with me. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I will certainly drink to that, to the mud in your eyes. Cheers. Cheers. 
Thanks so much to Justin for joining me on SAS Half Full. Absolutely love that guy. What an awesome interview. I did look up the cheers he gave us, which is here's mud in your eye, and he was right. It pays homage to soldiers who literally dug in the trenches for survival and lived to see another day. So I love that toast because we all work our asses off every day just to get up and fight another day. If you would like a cocktail kit, whether it was the martini that Justin was drinking or something else, guess what? We will send you booze to your door. All you have to do is visit shakerandspoon.com forward slash half full and you'll get 10 bucks off your cocktail order. Thanks so much for the listen. Really appreciate it. And until next time, bottoms up.